Uh, g'day, my name's Dave Myers. Uh, I'm a youth pastor on Sydney's Northern Beaches. Uh, I was here last week. I'll be here again next week. We're going to continue this topic of Jesus hates religion. Now, I have an observation about religion, an observation about worship. I think this is true even of the atheist. We all worship someone or something. We all worship someone or something. Everyone has something in their life that is the ultimate. Everyone has something in their life that they seek above all other things. You know, there might be a bunch of things competing for your attention. There might be a bunch of different objects of worship that you have in your life. But every single person has someone or something that they worship. You know, I think one of the biggest objects of worship in Sydney is the, is the idol of self. You know, most people put themselves at the centre and wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, wow, I love me. And pursuing worshipping themselves is their number one goal in life, is the ultimate thing in life. You know, for lots of young people that I work with, uh, sex is kind of that thing that they worship. It's that thing that they're desiring. It's the thing that they're chasing after. It's that thing that they're pursuing. It's that goal in life that they want more than anything else. You know, likewise in Sydney, for lots of people, it's, it's money and stuff and possessions. You know, we desire to accumulate lots of stuff. Sydney is the second most expensive city in the world to live. We're a city full of people, I know I'm speaking to university students right now, but everyone else at least has lots of money. And lots of you are here because you want lots of money. You want to have the career that can get you the money and get you the harbour view and get you the sweet spot and get you all the stuff that you'll ever want and ever need. Lots of people in our city worship stuff, worship money, worship possessions. You know, a little bit further up uh, on the northern beaches, people worship lifestyle. They worship laziness even. They worship, you know, just this pleasurable, kicking back, loving life. And that's kind of the goal for them in life. You know, everywhere we look in Australia, we have all sorts of different things that we worship. You know, the worship season has just started again for many AFL and rugby league fans among us. You know, that is in one sense the number one religion in Australia as people worship their favourite team and as people pursue their favourite team and are happy on a Monday because their team has won and are down in the dumps on a Monday if their team has lost. My observation is that all of us worship someone or something. Something takes that prize in our life, that thing that we're aiming for, that goal, that ultimate thing. And so my question to you this afternoon is, who are you going to worship? Not just with your lips, not just what you tick on a census form, But who are you going to worship with your life? As not just uh, you internally say, I worship. As other people look at your life, who would they say that you worship? Who would they say that you prize more than anything else? What would they say you prize more than anything else? You got the question? Who is it that you are going to worship? We've all got to choose someone or something to worship. And so who is it that you are going to worship? And so in Luke chapter 18, we actually meet a young guy who has a worship dilemma. He seems to be a pretty important person. He's a ruler of some description. And I think he has this question that he needs to answer of who is it that he is going to worship? What is it that's going to be at the primary center for him? What is the ultimate thing for him? And so he rocks up to Jesus 
And he asks Jesus a really good question. He says to Jesus, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What have I got to do to get into heaven? Is the question that he's asking. And I think it's a good question. It's a really good question. I'm not sure if you've thought about it before, but I'm really interested to know what the answer is that Jesus has. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what must you do to go to heaven? What must you do to be acceptable before God? Have you thought about that question before? You know, my guess is you've kind of thought, it's kind of the, you know, as, as he approaches Jesus, he's asking the question that you ask at the start of every semester in every subject. He kind of asks the question of what have I got to do to get past? What have, what have I got to do to get through? I know some of you are studious, but I know there's a whole bunch of Bachelor of Arts students here too, and I know that you just turn up and do whatever you've got to do to get through. And it's kind of that question, Jesus, what have I got to do to get through? What's the minimum requirement for passing this course? Is the question that this rich ruler is asking to Jesus. Have a look at it. If you've got a Bible there, look at it. If you don't, just listen along. I'm going to read some of the verses again that we've already heard. He says, chapter 18 of Luke. Sentence number 18, a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, he's kind of, he's kind of stopping this guy in his tracks just for a moment because he's kind of buttering himself up to this good teacher, Jesus. And he's kind of basically indicating that he's about to shoot straight from the hip. He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. And he says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Sentence 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great Wealth. You know, here's this, here's this fella, here's this ruler who comes to Jesus with this question and he's disappointed with the answer. Here's this ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what have I got to do? How do I inherit eternal life? And he leaves disappointed. He leaves sad. Why is he sad? Why is he disappointed? Why has he left in such a way? Well, I think in order to understand his response at this point, you kind of need to understand something of the commandments that Jesus is referring to. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the second book of the Bible is called Exodus. And it kind of tells the story of what God did to rescue his people Israel from slavery in a foreign nation in Egypt. It tells this amazing story of how God rescues his people. In the 20th chapter of Exodus... God's rescued people get given the Ten Commandments. I'm guessing you've heard of the Ten Commandments, regardless of whether you know what all ten are. There's these Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And these are the ways in which that God's people, Israel, are to live as God's people in God's land. And of the questions, of the questions, of the commandments, there's kind of two halves. The first half of the commandments are all about how you respond to God. And Jesus in the New Testament summarizes them as love God. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. You know, there's the first half of the commandments. Love God. The second half of the commandments are all about how we treat other people. And so what are they all about? They're about how we love other people. You know, Jesus says it. He says the greatest commandment is that you love God. And the second greatest commandment is, is that you love your neighbor as yourself. 
this rich ruler, he seems to be able to keep the second half. See there in sentence 20, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honour your father and mother. He says, I've kept him. He's kept him. He's a pretty good guy. He's done some pretty good things. He's loved his neighbour more or less. You know, he hasn't committed any gross sins or gross crimes deserving of the death penalty, deserving of jail or anything like that. Yet, Jesus' next statement there in sentence 22, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me, actually shows that this rich ruler is unwilling. He's unwilling to obey the greatest commandment. He's unwilling to worship God. He's unwilling to actually have God at the centre. He's happy to do some religious things, yet in the end... His object of worship is not God. His object of worship is his money and his possessions and perhaps his status in life that comes with those possessions and comes with those money, with that money. You see, last week we talked about part of religion is we want stuff from God, but we don't actually want God. You know, this guy comes to Jesus and says, You know, what do I have to do to get eternal life? He wants good things from God. He wants good gifts from God, but he doesn't want God. He he, he wants to get all the benefits of being a follower of God, but doesn't actually want to follow God. He wants all the stuff that God gives, but doesn't want God himself. You see, here is this person who has all these external religious deeds. You know, he really was probably a pretty good person. He wasn't morally bankrupt. Yet for all the external religion he had, he did not have an internal heart change. You know, for all of the external things that he did, he didn't have the inner heart that was inclined toward God. And that is ultimately what religion leads to. Religion leads to doing things without actually knowing God. It leads to kind of keeping a list of rules externally, but not having a heart that loves God, that wants to serve Him, that wants to honour Him, that wants to have Him as the ultimate in life. Now, amongst us um, this afternoon, I know there's people who are Christian, uh, there's those who claim to be Christian, and there's those of you who don't claim to be Christian. And I guess the question I want to ask all of you is, what are the things in your life that actually tempt you to not have Jesus, not have God as number one? Because my guess is, it's kind of probably an obvious thing for those who don't even claim to be Christian. You can work out what your goal in life is. You can work out what your pursuit is. You can work out what it is that you worship. But my guess is there's some amongst us here who claim to be Christian, but you've really only got all the external religious trappings. You've got the external marks of being a Christian. You've got the external marks of religiosity. But your heart does not long for God. Your heart does not desire Him above all other things. You know, you might walk away from Jesus in this conversation. And your issue is not money or possessions. Your issue might be something else. That imagine if Jesus asked you to give it up. Would you be willing to give it up? That relationship that pursuit, that mark, that whatever it might be, if Jesus said, give it up, 
and follow me? Would you be willing to actually give it up and follow him? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, give up this stuff and come follow me. But the man is sad because he was a man of great wealth. When I was a bit younger and thinking about Christian things, uh, I'd grown up in a religious family and I'd uh, kind of claimed to be a Christian. But I remember it kind of hit me as a 15, 16 year old that I really wasn't serving Jesus. I really wasn't a Christian. Uh, I was challenged to think that a Christian is someone who has Jesus as number one. Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the head of my life. Jesus is the one that I desire and long for. You know, for me, sport actually was, in a very real way, that was my goal in life. That was my pursuit in life. I remember hearing as a 15, 16-year-old in a sermon, you know, you've got to have Jesus as number... I don't think it was an American accent, but anyway. You've got to have Jesus as number one. And I remember thinking, really? Number one? Look, I'm happy for top five. Uh, if not top five, definitely top ten. But I can't have Jesus as number one. But that is actually the demand of what it means to follow Jesus. He's actually desire him more than everything else in the world, more than everything else in your life. Jesus is to be the ultimate. You see, Jesus hates religion. That's what we're looking at these three weeks. Because religion ultimately leads to a trust in self and not in God. And religion ultimately leads to a failure to love God. That's all religion does. It leads to a failure to love God. Do you know what the reality is, though, as you, read, as you continue reading this uh, part of the Bible? The reality is that it's actually pretty tough for anyone to get into heaven. You know, have a look at what happened next. In sentence number 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's tough for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. You know, you might be a uni student, you might be living kind of on the poverty line in, in some respects regarding Sydney, but we've got a pretty good welfare system. We've got okay government support, all those types of things. You've probably come from fairly wealthy families if you're going to university in the first place. If you didn't realise it, you are rich. You are very rich. Now, you can buy a Campos coffee on the way out of here for $3.30. And lots of you do that, and it's not a problem. But you know that 2.8 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day. They're not spending $3.30 on a cup of coffee. They buy instant and save it up and, and use it slowly over the month. You know, I counted recently in my house, there's 10 taps with running water. You know, that kind of indicates to me that I am very rich. My guess is where you live, there's some running water as well. And even if you don't have many running water taps in your house, there's taps on the street where you can get water for free and easily without having to fight for it, without having to get killed for it, without having to get disease from it. You know, we are rich people. And so Jesus is saying to us, it is hard for you to get into the kingdom of God, to get into heaven. Check out sentence 25. I don't know if you realised that when it was read out before, it's kind of funny. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, Eva, as she kind of read that out, she kind of, you know, camel, it's big, and pulled her fingers together for the eye of a needle. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
And so Jesus is actually saying it's impossible for you to do anything to enter the kingdom of God. There is nothing that you can do to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. And so look at the question in sentence 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Look, if rich people can't go through, sorry, if rich people can't enter the kingdom of God, if it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now, we need to stop right there for a moment because I reckon some of you right now are thinking, what are you talking about this saved business? What does that mean? Some of you don't actually think you need to be saved. You're not in a desperate situation. You don't need salvation. You're not drowning and need to be rescued. Everything's okay. I'm in charge. I'm in control. There's nothing going wrong in my life. There's nothing that I need saving from. There's no desperate situation that currently comes to hand. What do you mean I need to be saved? The reality is the Bible says that all of us ultimately need to be saved. Because the Bible says that each and every single one of us have sinned. We spoke a bit about this last week, but sin is when we fail to let God rule us as we should. It's when we fail to let God be God and we try to be God of our own lives and our own destiny. You know, there's things that we should do that we don't and there's things that we shouldn't do that we do. And we have this attitude where we reject God, where we, where, where we, where we seek autonomy from God. And the Bible says that each of us have sinned. And because each of us have sinned, each of us actually need to be saved. Because God says in the Bible that there is a penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is hell and judgment. And all of us actually need to be saved from hell. All of us need to be saved from judgment. All of us need to be saved from sin. All of us need to be saved from death. Your life is on a trajectory. You will die, whether that's in the next week or whether that's in 70 years' time. You will die. And the Bible says that after that, we will face judgment. How can anyone be saved on that judgment day? If even rich, well-to-do people in the first century can't be saved, and even rich, well-to-do university students in the 21st century can't be saved, what do we need to do to be saved? There's nothing we can do. There is nothing you can do to be saved. There is nothing anyone can do to be saved. You see, back in sentence 18, the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is the wrong question. He's already blown it. You've already blown it. The point is, there is nothing anyone can do to be saved from God's judgment. There is nothing anyone can do to be saved from sin and death. There is nothing you can do personally. There is no religious works that you can do. There are no good deeds that you can perform. There are no external religious markings that you can do that will make you acceptable before God. You see, Christianity is not a religion in the sense of do, do, do. You know, last week, if you were here, I spoke about as a 17-year-old, hearing, uh, hearing a speaker talk about the difference between Christianity and every other religion, other letters N and E. You know, I'm thinking, what the heck is this guy on about? I don't know what you mean by that. And he, and he explained it, and he said, religion is all about what I do, D-O. But Christianity is all about what Jesus has done, D-O-N-E. You see, religion is all about do, 
Christianity is not about do, it's about done. It's about trusting in Jesus and what he has done. You know, religion is about going to a river to wash away your sins. Religion is about praying five times a day in a certain direction. Religion is about having a pilgrimage to a certain city. Religion is about keeping up my church attendance or EU public meeting attendance. Religion is about having a Bible reading plan that I have stuck to. Religion is about do, 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 do. Christianity is about what Jesus has done. You see, becoming a Christian, becoming part of God's kingdom, being saved is not about what you do. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you do. It's not about trying harder. It's not about working harder. It's not about making up for your sins. It's not about keeping rules. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about trusting in Him. You see, Jesus hates religion because it emphasises doing things when it's all about trusting in what he has done. Religion can't save you. I'm not sure what your religion is here this afternoon. I'm not sure what you claim to have as your God. I'm not sure what it is that you worship. But your religion and religiosity will not save you. Only Jesus can save. And this... This is really good news. This is the best news you could ever hear. The good news of Christianity, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Jesus is that Jesus has done the impossible. Have a look at sentence number 27. Jesus replied, What is possible with men, sorry, what is impossible with men is possible with God. The impossible is made possible through Jesus and what he has done. The impossible has been made possible through Jesus and what he has done. How is it that Jesus makes the impossible possible? How is it that Jesus makes something that's just totally impossible, shoving a camel through an eye of a needle? How is it that Jesus makes that possible? We'll skip down to sentence number 31. Jesus actually points us very soon after this section. And he says, Jesus took, the, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man, the Son of Man is a reference to himself, will be fulfilled. Check this. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. How is it that Jesus makes the impossible possible? It's through those events there that Jesus is predicting are about to happen. Jesus says we're heading towards Jerusalem and here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to roll out. You know, I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be mocked, insulted, spat on, flogged. I'm going to be crucified on a cross. Three days later, I'm going to be raised again. It's actually through the events of Jesus' death and resurrection that God makes the impossible possible. That God makes it possible for anyone, rich or poor, young or old, to be saved. You see, why did Jesus have to die? Why was death the only way? Well, as we've already spoken about, death was the penalty for sin. 
And so Jesus comes along and he actually dies a death in the place of sin. Jesus actually dies a death where he takes upon himself sin for us. Where Jesus, the righteous one he's described as, the perfect, innocent one, Jesus actually dies in the place of the unrighteous. Jesus dies in the place of the guilty. Jesus, the sinless one, dies in the place of sinners. You see, Jesus died because of our sin, because of your sin. Jesus died ultimately to bring us back to God through that death on the cross, through that resurrection from the dead. The promise is salvation. The promise is is being saved from sin, from death, from judgment, from hell. Not because of what we do, but because we trust in what Jesus has done. Now, uh, just a quick show of hands if we've actually got any science students here, science department type of people here. Okay, quick apology because um, I'm not very good at science and you're going to see why in just a moment. But I remember hearing this uh, a long time ago and it stuck out to me as such a helpful way to remember what is going on at the cross of Jesus. Um, let me describe to you some scientific stuff that I learnt in year seven. That's kind of the um, extent of my scientific ability. My favourite lesson in year seven was the one where, uh, you know how year seven was where you just got int- introduced to all the different things in the lab? You know, Bunsen burner, fire, awesome, you know... You, chemicals, bang, explosion, really cool stuff. My favourite lesson, though, was quite a simple one. It was the magnifying glass lesson. You remember that one, year seven? The teacher said, now, class, here is a magnifying glass. I want you to go outside and write your name in a leaf. My teacher didn't sound like that, but that's kind of how I remember her. And (laughs) what did we do? We went outside, we found a leaf, and we start writing our name on the leaf. D... Uh, before you even got to the end of A, you realised there was much more cool stuff you could do with a magnifying glass, the sun, uh, and your friend's leg, perhaps. And, you know, you, you kind of have the magnifying glass over their leg and start to get that little burning sensation in their leg, and then you realise you can kill ants fairly quickly, and, you know, the, the heat comes down and, and the, the ant dies. And Let me explain to you, science friends, and I did arts at uni, so... Um, uh, let me explain to you how the magnifying glass works. You've got the glass bit, okay? And what the glass bit does is it kind of goes out into the ultraviolet rays and sun and stuff, and it says to the, the hot stuff coming down, it says, come to me, and it draws down the hot stuff, and as it passes through the glassy bit, this is the technical term, it kind of shrinks down and focuses down onto one point generating so much heat that you can write your name in a leaf, burn your friend's leg, start a bushfire, whatever the heck you want to do with it. You know, that's kind of how it works. What I want you to imagine, though, is actually something far more significant going on. Move away just from the Year 7 science experiment to actually putting yourself in the place of the people gathered around the cross of Jesus as he died 2,000 years ago. What I want you to imagine in all seriousness is a massive magnifying glass above Jesus' head and being drawn down through that magnifying glass is not sun, is not ultraviolet rays, is not heat generated by the sun, but it is actually judgment upon sin. It is actually sin itself bearing down on Jesus' head at that one point in history, at that one point in time, such that as Jesus dies, he takes upon himself our sin, 
the penalty for our sin, the judgment that we deserve for our rejection of him. You see, what took place at the cross of Jesus was to do an end to religion. Stop trying harder. Stop trying to do stuff to inherit eternal life and trust Jesus, the one who has taken it all upon himself on that cross. You know, three days later, he rose again. He shows that his death worked. He shows that those who trust in him can also look forward to a physical, resurrected eternity. And that is the hope of Christianity. You don't get it by being religious. You get it by trusting in Jesus, the perfect Son of God. You get it by trusting in Jesus and who He is and what He has done on the cross. See, Jesus hates religion. Religion's about what you do. Religion leads to a failure to love God. And so what matters is how you respond to Jesus. How have you responded to Jesus? You know, Jesus is not saying, hey, don't love God, hate God. Jesus is saying love God. Jesus is saying love him. Jesus is saying have me as the centre of your life. Have God as the centre of your life. Trust him more than your religious acts. Trust him more than your money, than your possessions, than your university degree, than your status, than your sex life, than your whatever you need to insert into that line. We all worship someone or something. Who will it be? Will it be Jesus or will it be someone or something else? You see, Jesus is the only one that can save And I want to invite you to trust him. I want to invite you to have him at the centre of your life. I want to invite you to put your hope in him. He is the one worthy of your worship. He is the only one that will save you on that last day. He is the only one who has done what is required for anyone to inherit eternal life. You know, I'm going to pray And here's how I'm going to pray. And I guess there's three different types of people that I want to pray this prayer. This is a prayer that I think helps to describe what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who who says sorry to God, who says thank you to God and says please to God. Sorry, God, that I've sinned. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus who's done it for me in his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And please, God, help me to live for Jesus now and not myself. Now, that's kind of the prayer I'm going to pray. And if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to pray it again. I reckon it's a cool type of prayer to pray every morning. Not that you need to wake up in the morning and become a Christian again, as if when you fell asleep you stopped being a Christian and need to be reconverted. But I think it's a cool prayer to actually come again before God and confess your sin, say thank you for the cross, and say please help me to live with Jesus as my ruler. Likewise, I want to invite a second group of people to pray this prayer. I reckon there's a bunch of you here today who are kind of playing the religious game. You're even playing the Christian religious game. You think God will accept you because of your religious acts and your religious deeds. Stop trying. Stop doing. Start trusting. And so some of you might actually kind of already be Christian, but actually need to realign yourself to follow Jesus and not yourself. Realign yourself to trust in what Jesus has done and not what you do. The third group of people are those here who actually may have realised today or maybe it's a process that's been happening for a while. That it's actually the right time for you to confess to Jesus for the very first time that you're sorry for, trying to, for your sin and that you're thankful for Jesus dying and that you actually want to live with Jesus as the object of your worship. 
I'm going to pray a prayer. And they're the three types of people I'm going to invite to pray it. If you're not ready to pray a prayer like this, don't pray it. Stick around, ask more questions, come to more of these events that are on in the coming weeks. Um, but here's what I'll pray, and then I'll pray it. And if you want to pray it, make it yours. It's, here it is. Dear God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for ignoring you. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for me so I may be forgiven. Thanks that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and cleanse me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. That's what I'm going to pray. I'll leave a little gap. You can echo it in your head. You can echo it in your heart. And if you want to make this prayer yours, and if you want to actually put your trust in Jesus, whether it's for the thousandth time, whether you're coming back, or whether it's for the first time, let me invite you to pray this with me. Uh, Dear God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for ignoring you. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for me so I may be forgiven. Thanks that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and cleanse me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love you to let someone know. Uh, I'd love you to write down the date if it's the first time you've ever prayed it. Have a party on this date every year. It's kind of Christians describe becoming a Christian as like a rebirth, as a a being born again. And so I encourage people when they pray prayers like that to buy soft drink, to buy coffee, however sophisticated you are, and uh, throw a bit of a party and celebrate this date from now on. And Richard will tell us what we're doing next. Um, just stick around. We're gonna... oh, I'm going to stick around. That's yeah, you're going to stick next. around because we're gonna... we've got a couple of questions that have been SMSed in. Um, are there any questions from the floor? Just stick up your hand just so I can get an indication. All right, well, we've got a couple of questions that have been SMSed in. Um, all, all of them have to do with uh, sort of this notion that it's nothing that we can do. Um, and I've got two questions here that are kind of linked. Uh, they're to do with faith. So if there's nothing that we can do, uh, surely our faith isn't our own. And also, but what about the notion that faith without works is dead? So kind of just that yeah. package. Yeah, okay, cool. What's, what's the, I guess what's the relate? So I've said it's not about what you do. It's all about trusting in what Jesus has done. Um, uh, I think that is a way of describing what faith is. Faith is putting your trust in someone else, in something else, and trusting that it will save you. You know, if I'm to, um, if I'm drowning and someone throws out a, a, a flotation device, I put my faith in it as I cling to it. What saved me? Was it my faith? No, it was actually the flotation device saved me and I was clinging to that which saved me. And so there is, we do something, we put our faith in Jesus, but even faith in Ephesians chapter 2 is described as a gift. It's described as something freely given to us by God. And so um, faith is not a work. Faith is simply trusting, not in anything we can do, but trusting in what Jesus has done. And so what's the relationship of faith? Because the Bible does talk about living a changed life. The Bible does talk about the importance of works, the importance of living differently. It's all about order of operations. It's all about which one comes first. You know, it's not doing good stuff will lead to salvation. It's not good works will lead to salvation. It's salvation, and how does salvation come? By trusting in Jesus and what he has done. Then that leads to a changed life. That is the fruit of salvation. It doesn't bring salvation. 
It's actually the result of how you live differently in response to what is being done on your behalf. Cool. Um, any other questions from the floor or anyone want to respond to that? Not satisfied with that answer? All right, we'll continue with our next question. Um, still to do with this nothing we can do to be saved, uh, what do you make of Jesus' positive response to Peter in verses 28 to 30? Okay, so the question is, what do I make of... What was the first little bit? Uh, you argue there is nothing we can do to be saved. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, and so what do I make of the response there? Let me read it out in case you don't have a Bible. It says, Peter said to Jesus, um, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You know, it's kind of, um, you know, Peter's kind of, you know, he's just, he, Jesus just said, look, hey, it's, it's impossible for a, um, a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Um, sorry, it's more possible for that to happen than for someone to enter the kingdom of God. And they're kind of like, what are we doing following you then if, you know, it's actually impossible to be saved, if it's actually, you know, why are we doing this? What is going on? And so I don't think, I don't think what is going on there is any... Um, question of them working to be saved. Um, I think they are people who actually have uh, responded rightly to what Jesus said to the rich ruler in verse um, verse 22. You still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. They've actually done that. They've actually said, we want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And they've given up families, they've given up jobs, they've given up all sorts of things. And Jesus actually says, hey, um, uh, uh, you'll be honoured for that. You'll actually receive much more in this age. And I think that's part of being part of the people of God, part of being part of um, God's family on this earth, is you'll actually end up with a bigger family and ultimately you will have riches in heaven, you will have treasure in heaven. Again, it's not because of anything they've done. They've actually followed the call of Jesus. They've followed him, uh, but it's not they're saved by anything that they do. Ultimately, they're saved by what takes place at the cross, just like anyone else who puts their trust in Jesus.